G'day, Luke. Hey, David. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, this is Ale Blue Dots. We're back. So today our, our subject is early life on Earth and extremophiles, something which both Luke and I know a bit about. These are typically organisms that thrive in what we consider an extreme environment, something outside of the normal ambient conditions. Normal relative to the room I'm sitting in, I guess. And there are extreme environments, micro environments all over the place. And I guess even within my body right now, there are extremophiles surviving and uh, keeping me alive. Your stomach's full of uh, acid that uh, the rest of you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily enjoy. So, But uh, you guys are probably sick and tired of listening to us. And so I believe we have a guest. Yeah, I was sick and tired of myself after the two-hour lecture this week. So <laughs> let's give everyone a break and we will get... Uh, Professor Gordon Southern on the banana phone. Ooh, okay, let's call him up. Ring, 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 banana phone. Hi, Gordon. Hi, Luke. Hi, David. Hello. So, Gordon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? So, I kind of began my scientific career as a microbiologist uh, doing kind of conventional medical micro and immunology, my studies. Uh, from there, I went on to a PhD on a methanogen, Methanosrillum hungedii, and uh, kind of discovered a, a love of environmental microbiology. And from there, found myself to hang out with geologists, and uh, I've been doing that ever since. What can microbiology tell us about the history of early life on Earth? Well, the, the, the conditions on early Earth were, were thought to be much warmer than they are today, and that the planet was anaerobic. It was before oxygenic photosynthesis had, uh, had evolved. And so the, the kind of the, the interest in life in extreme environments is that these, these same kinds of organisms, methanogens that have to grow anaerobically, just a whiff of oxygen will kill them, uh, to thermophiles, things that can grow, what's the, the temperature record? It's something like 122 degrees C, under pressure so you don't have boiling. So these, these extreme organisms would have been kind of consistent with uh, life on the early planet. Today, they're restricted to uh, much more narrow environments because uh, the Earth's uh, a much more ambient uh, friendly uh, situation today. Expand on that, Gordon. The idea of an extremophile uh, is something that's relative to the conditions. Yeah, the, the subject of, a, of an extremophile is relative to us. Yeah. Right, that uh, you put us in an anaerobic environment, and we won't last very long. If you take us to, uh, you know, kind of near boiling conditions, like you find in in hydrothermal springs in Yellowstone National Park, we don't, we won't do well there either. Or even under even just something that's very salty, right? We we need fresh water. For the organisms that grow in those conditions, though, right? Something that grows under salt. If you put it in fresh water, they explode. If you take thermophiles. Uh, that are used to growing at 80 or 90 degrees Celsius, and you take them to our ambient condition, 21 degrees C, the phospholipids will solidify and the cell will just crack and die. Likewise, the methanogen, you expose it to oxygen and, and it'll last seconds. It sounds like from what Gordon just told us that we have a bunch of really extreme environments on Earth today, uh, here and there, and we have organisms that are surviving in these environments. And we think that they may have evolved very early and survived on the early Earth, which we, we think was uh, also somewhat extreme in terms of a lot of the characteristics of the, the environments that were available. 
I'm wondering, Gordon, uh, what makes us think? Why do we think the early Earth was extreme? Well, so we were coalescing from, uh, you know, kind of pre-planetary materials. We had kind of a, a near Mars sort of impact that liquefied the planet and created a core and created the moon. And so it was very harsh condition. And then, you know, within a few hundred million years, there's the idea that there was liquid water. And liquid water is key. As soon as you've got liquid water, you've got the basis for geochemistry and maybe the precursor to biogeochemistry possible. And so one of the early experiments, it was based on kind of a 1920s uh, a theoretical work from a geochemist who thought, who described what early earth was like. And then the Yuri Miller experiments where they said, well, let's, let's try and create an early earth. And, and they didn't necessarily nail it, but, uh, but what was incredible about what they showed is that by having water and a hydrologic cycle and a spark indicating lightning, that uh, you could produce sugars and amino acids, the, the, the building blocks of life in as little as a week. You know, even if it's slower than what they demonstrated, we had geologic time. How long does it take life to form? We haven't a clue, right? It, 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 you know, millions of years, tens of millions of years. When we're talking billions of years in geologic time, life could have sputtered out of the starting gate a, a, a few times and, uh, and, you know, been impacted certainly before our fossiliferous period uh, by the late heavy bombardment, which was, which was thought to be a sterilizing event on the, on the planet. So the, the late heavy bombardment, the late heavy bombardment is this time period where we have all of these space rocks being hurled at the earth and they're bringing useful stuff, water, organic molecules, but they're also having a, it's not a very pleasant time, presumably on the surface of the earth. We might be boiling the oceans all the way down to the, the seafloor with a big enough impact. But even if we did that, could we actually sterilize the earth? You said we've got uh, organisms living kilometers down. Now, today we, we've found life uh, basically as deep as we've looked. Uh, I've been part of a, a group, we went to the South African gold mines. We're four kilometers before, below land surface. There's fractures down there, there's liquid water, and there's life in those fractures. So even if we sterilize the surface of the planet, this put possible that life might have existed you know, kind of in subterranean refuges away from this, uh, this bombardment event. Fascinating stuff. And so is it, would you say, Gordon, that uh, once life gets hold on a planet like the Earth and it's present, you know, at the top of the atmosphere and also five kilometers down in, in solid rock, um, it's pretty much there to stay unless we uh, melt the whole planet. Right. The key is that we have liquid water. Wherever you can find liquid water, you're, you're likely going to find life. Although the upper temperature limit for life is about 122 degrees C under pressure. On the cold side, uh, we found things growing at minus 15 degrees C. And it's like, well, shouldn't that be freezing? And ice crystals, aren't they bad for life? And uh, in salty environments, uh, you can actually, and, and bacteria will employ their own cryoprotectants to protect against ice crystal damage and grow uh, at cold conditions. So it says there's a there's a pretty wide window that uh, life and microbial life on Earth has been exploiting. Comparative to other planets, these windows overlap quite a bit. Yeah, so the whole kind of panspermia thing that uh, Mars was smaller, uh, cooled quicker, would have had liquid water before Earth. Uh, maybe the late heavy bombardment uh, launched something off of Mars, landed on a on a on earth and uh, so in that case we're martian what a boring conclusion to the question of whether life exists beyond earth yes but it's it's just us <laughs> we played with that right we uh 
we took some sandstones to uh, kind of the, the white sand missile range and uh, we basically, we blew them up. And one of the impacts we tried was uh, kind of a steel bearing uh, at two kilometers a second, which they assured me would be a sterilizing effect. And when we compared the rock before and afterwards, the viable numbers actually went up. How can, how can numbers possibly go up from an impact event? And basically what we found is that uh, the, the rock had microcolonies growing in it. And in shattering the rock, we tore apart the microcolonies, but we didn't kill all the bacteria. And so they, could, they can withstand the kinds of impacts that it would take to la launch them off of a planet. Wow. So, so if you launched a, a big enough piece of rock uh, where, you know, it was, I guess you could have some water and maybe some heat for a while, um, they might survive. I guess it might take, what, like a million years for them to arrive at Mars or Mars to Earth? Well, so, you know, you, you look at, uh, there's some interesting stuff done on uh, insects and amber that they found bacteria in the guts of the insects that had formed endospores and were culturable out of amber that was considered to be, you know, kind of Jurassic, right? Tens of millions of years old. And so this, this long-term survival of bacteria is, uh, is still a big question mark that's out there. We wouldn't expect them to necessarily be growing in that, that you know, kind of lump that was launched off of, off of Mars or launched off of Earth and returned to Earth when it was more quiescent, right? Could, uh, both could happen. Uh, so that, that's, that's terrifying and interesting at the same time, is it not? The, uh, the, the idea that this, there's bacteria or uh, microbes out there that are potentially dormant for... for uh, well, you know, you, you, we're, we're looking at uh, transfer, you know, the idea of transfer from Mars to Earth, right? Which in astronomical terms is, uh, you know, like our nearest neighbor. You know, I think it's, you know, space is cold and the best way to store organisms is, uh, you know, in, in, in minus... Like 192 degrees C, right? Liquid nitrogen kind of yeah. kind of temperatures. The colder it is, you know, minus 80 will store stuff, but the colder it is, the the better it is to store bacteria. So they they weren't necessarily growing in the rock; they were just frozen, frozen in time. And uh, and if you you know you you crash them onto a planet or crash them into an ocean, then you're effectively just inoculating that new planet. There's an interesting conclusion I think that follows that line of thinking, which is that. If Mars was habitable in the distant past and pieces of Mars came to Earth, maybe our ancestors came in those pieces, um, Mars today is presumably still habitable in the subsurface. We have water in the ground table. We have brines that come to the surface, and we know that some of those environments are habitable on Earth. So if Mars was inhabited by microbes in the past, presumably it still is. You'd be hard to yeah. sterilize, right? The whole, whole issue of extant life, right? Are we just going to find fossils there in iron oxide or some of the minerals that we're seeing? Or, uh, or could you find life in, uh, life in the deep subsurface of Mars? And uh, if it got hold the same way that it has on Earth, then there's, there's no reason why not. So if there's life in the fossil record on Mars, there should be life today in the subsurface. I'd expect it. If you, you, can, you can show me where there's liquid water, and certainly there's evidence for like liquid salty water, you know, kind of coming out. So uh, uh, that's, that's actually quite near surface that, uh, that there could in fact be life. We've looked at salty environments on earth, uh, Basque lakes in British Columbia. It's, uh, it's magnesium sulfate, it's Epsom salts, right? To have liquid water in, in the Epsom salts, it's 700 grams per liter, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And uh, I've got photos of a student's feet who, uh, after he was running around the Epsomite, the Epsom salts, to uh, collect biofilm. And uh, 
they look like raisins. Just it's, it's a harsh, again, that life in extreme environment, harsh for the student, perfect for the bacteria. One of the things that was really strange is, uh, is we saw salt crystals forming on biofilm below the surface, so it wasn't evaporite. And the, the question was, oh, wouldn't it be cool if the biology was driving salt formation? And when we actually got it into the laboratory, we had an abiotic control that stayed liquid. And in the biological system, we formed salt and we trapped the bacteria in the salt. So what, one other thing I wanted to talk to you, Gordon, about is you work with live microbes, not just the, the dead ones from the past. And they have an incredible array of uses that can be exploited for various biotechnical or geotechnical exercises. And that's where a lot of uh, ultimately extremophile work ends up being done. Yeah, so from, uh, from an Earth perspective, uh, they're often described as good bacteria or bad bacteria. That uh, if we're using them in, uh, in kind of geologic material to extract metal. And so 15% of the world's copper is, uh, is recovered with bioleaching. And that's these bacteria that dissolve the rock and release copper that we can, we can use in our industrial systems. Uh, however, if they're oxidizing rock in an uncontrolled way and it's leaching into our lakes and rivers and uh, impacting ecosystems, they're bad bacteria. They're the same bacteria. They're trying to make a go of it, in this case, by oxidizing iron. Imagine trying to, to live where if you take iron two to iron three, you get a single electron, right? The only way to kind of to have a go at it is to oxidize an awful lot of iron. Iron's a very common metal. Uh, copper is a very common metal on the surface, the one that we use. Another uh, metal that isn't so common is gold. I think some of our listeners will be surprised to know that uh, gold can be actually grown, and you've done it. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's not alchemy. We're not turning straw into gold, although uh, straw could feed the bacteria that can transform gold. Geochemists have uh, described for years where gold grains appear to grow. That as you go downstream from, a, from an outcrop or an ore deposit, they can find larger and larger gold grains. And, uh, and so we've looked at that. It fits in with our iron and sulfur bacteria. That uh, uh, thiosulfate, a specific uh, sulfur compound, is very good at binding gold. And there's bacteria that can, that can eat the thiosulfate. So in, in, in doing that, they have to deal with the gold. So the, our, our record experiment is, uh, is we've started out with five micrometer bits of gold, microscopic. You can, you really, well, you need microscopes to see it. Uh, and we've ended up with five millimeter pieces of gold. So we've increased three orders magnitude and size. So we can, we can, we can grow gold nuggets with the help of bacteria. So I think, I, I think the take home message from today is that if there's water, there's life on earth and nearly every part of the earth that we've looked at, looked for life, we found it. And that microbes themselves are kind of the, the ultimate tool for uh, sourcing all sorts of products and, and processes that potentially you know, either lead to a, a increased medical capabilities, increased rehabilitation, environmental rehabilitation or you know even to a green more green economy would you uh, would you agree with that good microbes of the future well they were our past so i expect they'll yeah. be an important component of our future basically if you can if you can write a geochemical reaction 
that uh, has a bit of energy in it, there's probably a microorganism that's catalyzing that reaction. So uh, to me, the best bet is always to look to nature. Nature has been selecting for these strange organisms for geologic time. And so uh, there's no better place to go looking for uh, these extreme environments than, uh, than our natural planet. Mm. Our second podcast was, uh, was called Microbe Meatbags, which is what we're describing humans as. So. Uh, We're just a host to, to carry, uh, to carry our, our natural flora around. So we've just drawn a line, I think, from the ancient past, from Earth's earliest environments, which we think were somewhat extreme, through the present day, where we have a variety of amazingly diverse metabolisms in these microbes in the extreme environments that Gordon is studying, through to the future, where we may learn to harness those microbial metabolisms to do all sorts of things like clean up. Um, contaminated mine sites, um, grow our food, and even grow gold nuggets. This is a this is a microbial world. Uh, terribly interesting. I I want to know more about extremophiles. That's what I've decided. Look, me too, and I think we've probably known that for a long time, which is why we we do what we do. But exactly. look, everyone else, if you're interested in extremophiles, and probably are, if you're interested in anything from the history of life on Earth to remediation of um, you know, old coal mines or, uh, you know, food production. Biotechnology. Uh, bio, yes, biotechnology in general. Have a look around uh, the internet. And uh, if you're interested in the uh, applications and uh, uh, consequences of uh, extremophile research for space exploration, check out astrobiology.nasa.gov um, or just get onto Google Scholar. And there's a huge number of studies that have been done on uh, extremophiles and, uh, you know, uh, space exploration, looking for life on other planets and moons. Very good, David. So we'll uh, see you next time. See you then, Luke. Bye. Hello and welcome to Mars. It's the world of street files.